2017. It's Robin Marshall, America's number one sugar mom. Happy to be with you one more time in regards to lemons to lemonade, my series about having ovarian cancer. I know I was supposed to be here last Thursday, but I'm telling you, it took me quite a bit to sort through all the things that had happened in my life from that last session until today. I recorded the first five blogs that I had written during the time I was going through it, turned them into podcasts since then, when I was so shocked and so surprised that they miscalculated the last date of chemo. I got a buy, a big time buy, by not having to do those last two rounds of chemo. And I got to ring the bell, which symbolizes somebody that's finished their chemo treatment. I still tear up when I think about that. But 20 months went by, 20 months of trying to recuperate, trying to outlive the chemo that was still in my system. It's a drug that never disappears. I've learned this. While on chemo, there are certain smells and tastes that just can't escape you. They're always with you as long as you have the IV drip going into your arm. Well, during those 20 months, that smell and taste would appear, even though I was no longer using the drug. And I started to also realize that there was a pattern. And I wonder if other cancer patients have had the same reaction, where if you're stressed about something or overheated or cold, these three things act like trigger points that will bring that right to the surface. I start to smell that chemical smell and taste that metallic taste. And there's really nothing I can do to get rid of it until it just stops. Who knew that it could linger and stay with you as long as it did? I'll tell you, it took me a good four months until I had my energy level back where it used to be, at least close to it. A lot of people don't move that quickly. Four months is not a long time to get yourself back. Although I never really let myself go in the first place. So I just started walking again. Around three or four months, I just doubled the amount of walking I had done prior. I slowly started to feel like myself again. My hair started to grow. After about two months, I started to see little peach fuzzies, you know, all over the top of my head. It was promising and yet defeating because I knew it was going to be a long time coming. But the one thing that kept me going was the fact that I could actually say I was a survivor. I did it. I conquered that beast. So I took every day as a blessing. I went home more often to see my children. They flew in to see me. I increased my activity levels by going different places, things that I had wanted to see ahead of time. I got right back into my book again, touring, hired a staff of PR people, and just picked up where I left off at a faster pace. I was embarrassed to go out without a wig on, and that lasted at least eight months. I was so grateful that the first three or four months were still cold outside because those wigs can be so hot and stifling. And I just learned at that point, I was so quick at being able to put it on. 
I could flip my head upside down, put that thing on. I didn't need tape anymore. I knew exactly how not to turn my head, how not to get caught on anything so that it would yank off my head. I became a pro. After you wear a wig for that long, you do become very apt at knowing what to do and certainly what not to do. You don't stand near a blowing fan when you're wearing a wig that's not taped down. <laughs> for instance, life was good. I was proud of myself. My kids were proud of me. They were ecstatic. What could go wrong in mom's life now? She's already had the worst thing happen to her. And I was being checked every quarter. Blood tests, scans to make sure that nothing had grown back. My scars were healing. I mean, I was feeling like a woman again. Sex was great. I was no longer embarrassed about the scar from the surgery. I was well enough to take my whole family, when invited by a dear friend at the time, to go to Aruba. It was wonderful. And at that time, my hair was about, oh, I guess, two inches all the way around. And I was wearing a wig. And when I got to Aruba, I decided, that's it. I'm done. I took that wig off. I put on my sunglasses. I went outside and met my family, and all of them had the biggest smiles on their faces. I'll just never forget it. Mom, you look so cute. <laughs> Not exactly the words a woman who's normally been sexy wants to hear, but you know what? I took it, <laughs> and I owned it, and I just had the time of my life. No more worrying about anything falling off, anything getting stuck. I went in the ocean. I didn't have to worry about a thing. We went to Kauai as a group. I ziplined and had a wonderful time. It's funny how I measure time by the length of my hair. <laughs> I never realized that until just this moment. As I picture myself in each place, I picture the length of my hair. I guess it really did matter to me. I think it matters to every woman that goes through it. Having two trips under our belts and me feeling human again. One, two, skip a few. Twenty months comes. I go for my quarterly and my CA-125 blood test, which is an ovarian cancer indicator, shot up, which meant something was amiss. Now, I know I was told in the beginning this is a chronic cancer only 15% of women ever are free of it within the first three years. Well, I was on month 20, and I was going full steam ahead. And then I got slapped in the face by that blood test. They did scans. They didn't see anything. She asked me if I wanted to wait, and I said, yes, I want to wait. We waited another two weeks and took another CA-125 test, and the number was higher. So... The writing was on the wall. It was back. I was now a cancer survivor who was a victim of cancer again. It feels like you blow up the most big, beautiful, fancy, stretchy balloon. And it's got so much helium inside of it that if you don't hold on to the string hard enough, you fly with that balloon. It takes you up into the air. And then all of a sudden, you hit something like a bird's beak, and it pops, and you start spiraling down back to the ground, back to reality. That's where I landed, back in reality, back in the IV chair, back to round one 
of six for a different kind of chemo. That was the glasses half full for me. This chemo was not the type that would have me lose my hair. But on the other side of the coin, we didn't know if it was going to make me more sick than the last chemo. I decided to risk it. I don't know. Losing your hair is a really big deal. Maybe not to everybody, but it sure was to me. And I didn't know if I could survive it again mentally. It took its toll on every part of my soul. I didn't want to risk it. I felt a disease I can beat, but my mind, my heart, and my soul are things that I don't always have control over. So I chose this route. But wait, there's more. Not only had the cancer come back, I had been having trouble walking. My hips were killing me. And it was because the first round of chemo had eaten through the cartilage that was in my hip joints. And I'm a walker. I'm very athletic in that way. I didn't know what to do when I found out I needed more chemo. What was going to happen to my hips? Well, she put her hand up in the air with her finger pointing towards me and said, no chemo until you have your hips replaced. I looked at her like she was out of her mind. I said, hips? As in two? Yes. She said, you cannot have chemo because you'll wind up in a wheelchair. You won't be able to walk. You don't know what this chemo is going to do to the rest of the cartilage in your hips. I sat back in my chair let out a deep breath, shook my head, went home, had somebody refer a surgeon to me, went for a consultation. I said to him, I need to have both of my hips replaced. And he says, well, both? I said, yes. He goes, all right, well, let's take a look. And he did the x-rays and he says, well, the left looks worse than the right for sure. He says, let's schedule the left one for, and he gave me a date. I said, no, you don't understand. I don't have time to wait to do them one at a time. I need them both done together. He says, oh, no, no, no. He says, I don't do that. I said, why? He says, because it's not good to do it that way. He says, you've got to have one to have a little bit of strength before you do the other. What happens if something goes wrong? I said, well, couldn't that same something go wrong if you did one at a time? He says, yeah, but you have nothing to lean on. I said, that's what a walker is for. I said, I'm in a rush. What's the rush, he says. I said, I need chemo. And I can't be put on chemo until my hips are fixed. Silence. Or you might say, dead air. He said, uh, I'd like to talk to your oncologist. Because as of right now, I'm not your guy. I said, okay. Gave him her number. I left. Started looking for another surgeon. He spoke with my oncologist. I got a phone call from him. He says, can you please come back in for one more consultation? Sat down on the table across from him. His words were, I want to apologize to you. And, and I was quiet. And he says, I can do both of your hips at the same time, he said. And I want to tell you why. I said, no. I realized I was being very selfish in saying no. And I just tilted my head, waiting, anticipating. He said, if a patient comes in and needs both hips done, a surgeon will do one hip. The insurance company will pay in full for that hip. 
If you wait six weeks and then you do the next hip, the insurance company will pay in full for the second hip. But if you do both hips at the same time, the insurance company only pays one and a half times. I was, to say the least, taken aback. And he said, I will schedule both of your hips and I want you to accept my apology, please. I did speak to your doctor and I understand the urgency. I knew not to say anything negative because this is the man that was about to fix me and if I pissed him off, that would not go over well. Just like I was afraid to piss my doctor off before surgery with the cancer, I said, thank you. What more could I say? We scheduled, I had the surgery. Within four days, I was up outside with a laundry cart, if you could picture this, a pillow on the bottom, and my dog, my little Chewini Lucy, sitting on the pillow, and I was walking the neighborhood with both hips just replaced. Four days after surgery, I refused to wait because I didn't want the cancer to grow more. Three weeks later, I started chemo. Now you can call me Superwoman again. <laughs> There were no precautions given to me once I had these hips replaced. You know, I knew not to play basketball or go running, at least not for the first six weeks. I took care of myself. I didn't do anything really strenuous except walk or ride a bike. And I was in my bathtub just shaving my legs. That was it. And I felt something. On the left side where your hip joint is, I felt Something slide. It slid across my abdomen. That hip joint came out. So I was laying there with a dislocated hip, just laying in a tub. Only me could this happen to. Lucky for me, I had my cell while in the tub. I mean, who doesn't nowadays? I had no towel because it was in the towel warmer that's across the room. And I had to call 911. Man, I'm telling you, I knew it the minute I heard her put that dispatch out. She had me on the phone. I heard her say, woman, mid-50s, in bathtub, can't get out. I knew every guy on the job was going to show up at that call. And I knew this was going to be a fiasco. I had my left leg crossed over my right. So that part of me was covered because I couldn't uncross them, because that's the hip that came out. And I had my other arm crossed over my breasts, trying to hide whatever I could. And seven men walked into my bathroom. Seven! I said to all of them, Get out! Just get out! They all filed out, and I stopped the last one. You, please, go get me my bathrobe. I told him where it was. He brought it back to me, and I said, just cover me, please. Can you imagine how embarrassing that was? They had to take a tarp and finagle me so that it was under me so that they could lift me out of the bathtub. Now, I mean, I'm 130 pounds. It's not that I weigh a lot. It's just when somebody has a dislocated hip, it's not pain-free. They carried me out to the ambulance, took me to the hospital, it's like never-ending. This is my life. Put me in the emergency room 
The doctors came in. The nurse starts an IV. Now, this is a woman who's had so many IVs in the last three years. I know when somebody has put the IV in wrong. I promise you it's not me being a bitch. I said to the nurse, I really think you made a mistake. It's not in. It's hurting. It shouldn't hurt like that. She says, honey, it's in. You can see the drip. It's working. I said, whatever it looks like is not what it feels like. There's a problem. I asked how long it would take and what were they going to do? And the doctor came in and said, well, we're going to do something. And I don't remember what he called it, but they knock you out for like three minutes so that they can relocate the hip, pop it back into its joint, and then you wake up. Well, they kept pushing this drug. It's the same drug that Michael Jackson OD'd on. And first they gave me 30, I guess, cc's of it. That was supposed to have knocked me out. Well, it didn't. I kept saying, it's the IV. She kept saying, no, it's dripping. I said, well, it's hitting something in there. It's not going in my vein. 60 cc's, nothing. 80, 90, 100. They got up to 130 cc's of this stuff. And the doctor is looking at me astoundedly. He says, I have never in all my years seen a patient withstand that much of this drug. I said, it's because the drug isn't going in. It's hitting something there. There might be like a cell wall or a vein wall or whatever's in your veins. I don't know. I said to him, do me a favor, get a different nurse and put an IV in the other arm. And they did. I said, give me a different drug. And they did. And the minute that drug hit the IV bag, I said to all of them, I'm out. Next thing I knew, I woke up. My hip was perfect. (laughs) My attitude was not, but I was a hell of a lot happier than I was five minutes earlier. Three weeks later, I began my chemo. The first month obviously wasn't as bad. I did feel a little bit sick, you know, on days four through eight and, uh, and went through all the normal routines The next month, I went back for a CA-125 again, and the number went down. So it showed that this chemo was working. I couldn't have been happier, except after this round, round two, I really started to get sick. And I don't mean throwing up kind of sick. I mean, like, I started doing things that I didn't have any memory of doing. I was just having a very bad reaction to this chemo. It was fooling with my mind. I noticed I started to get sick after the second month where it was normally days four through eight that you would feel really like crap. But this was lasting two weeks at a time. I just wasn't myself at all. Did not want to leave the house. Didn't want to walk. Didn't want to do anything. I was almost lethargic except for work. Month three, I went back, looked at the nurse, said to her, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to do this. And she says, well, you've only got four more to go. And to me, that felt like an eternity, just hearing those words. The IV started. I couldn't even sleep through it, where that's what I used to do the first time around. Sleep through it, wake up, wonder if the cancer cells are being beaten back, go about your life, pray not to get sick. And the only thing that I could make matter from this disease was being able to talk about it and share the experience. But my second go round, I couldn't do it. So I went inside myself. I just buried myself. It became very dark. 
I had become this superhero of a woman who battled and beat and slayed cancer the first time around. I told everybody, went public with it, as you know. How could I possibly admit to the world that I had it again? This was my line of thinking. It didn't make any sense, but it's how I thought. So I carried this one pretty much on my own. I told my immediate staff. I had two friends that I'd let know, just in case. But the rest of the world, all social media, I kept it quiet. I learned my lesson is really what happened. I realized, no, I didn't beat it. It just took a break. And chances are, it's going to beat me. I did that third round of chemo. The days and the nights blended together for the next three weeks. I was sick almost the entire month. The problem is when you have chemo in your system, and I'm talking about from the first go-round, it still hadn't left my body even after 20 months. So now I had two grades of chemo just dancing around inside my body, doing all kinds of war dances. And my body wasn't reacting well at all. In fact, my quality of life was slipping. So the day I went for my fourth round of chemo, I lost the wind in my sail. It was gone. I went that day to the hospital, couldn't even talk to the nurse. I had nothing to say to anybody. I was so sad. I don't remember in my life ever feeling that disparity. She asked me how my day was. I just turned my head. What could I say? I couldn't even talk. I didn't want to be there. I'd had enough. Day after day, I got sicker and more sick. I missed my mom. <sighs> Every day, I couldn't wait for it to be bedtime. So much for superhuman powers. Oh, I was a mess. How does a strong woman who battles and fights and doesn't lose her place and continues with work continues to lead a team of people, not letting anybody down, making herself strong for her children, giving them guidance, paying for their tuition, inspiring them to keep going to school because it's going to pay off, pretending like I wasn't sick. Even to my best friend, I didn't let him know the degree of my depression. Got sicker. Every day got worse. I called my doctor. I said, I don't feel well. You know, normally I can handle anything, but this one is kicking my ass. I don't know what to do. She says, well, we'll look at your numbers at the end of the month. We'll see how you're doing. And I just lived day by day. It was like putting one foot in front of the other day by day. I didn't want there to be another day. Don't ever let anybody ever tell you when you're depressed, that you'll get over it. Just get over it. It'll pass. Time heals all wounds. That's bullshit. You need help. I needed help. I really didn't know what to do. I finally got myself together. Oh, sounds like it, right? I did. I got myself together. I pulled myself. I don't even know which direction I pulled myself, but I pulled everywhere. Like... I was Gumby. 
I bended, I twisted, I pushed, I pulled, I snapped my fingers. I looked in the mirror. I said to myself, Robin, you've got to get your shit together. You still have life. You still have five children that love you and need you. You've got to pull yourself out of this deep, dark hole. I felt like Alice in Wonderland. I ate the wrong thing or I drank from the wrong bottle and I shriveled up into this little thing that fell down the rabbit hole and I was clawing to get myself back in the light. And I did. I did it. I finally saw the light. Like I was holding on to the edges of the dirt and I was pulling myself up and all you could see, if you picture in your mind, are two hands holding on, the top of my head peeking out and the light hurting my eyes. But I got out again and I stood up and I brushed myself off and I dusted off my dress and I put on my goddamn heels. I put my makeup on fixed my hair, which was now down to my shoulders. Every time I'd brush my hair, I'd be afraid some would fall out, regardless of what the doctor told me. So I didn't brush it hard. I had my fourth. I was on my way to the hospital for round five. I was still sick from round four. I walked into her office, pre-injection. It's like start your engines. Looked at her, I said, I want to know what my blood results are. I went earlier that morning. I want to have a scan. I want to see if there's anything there. And if my results come back, perfect. And if you see nothing on that scan, I'm done. No more chemo for me. No more round five or six. I'm done. My quality of life has been terrible. And I would rather take my chances. It's chronic anyway. We all know it's probably going to come back at some point. So I need a rest. My mind needs a rest. My body needs a rest. I need to know the results. She went online. We looked. I had the scan. Came back. Studied the sonogram. Blood results were perfect. Sonogram showed nothing. She said, she said, there is something that was just passed by the FDA For ovarian cancer patients, it's a preventative drug. I said, what does it do to your body? She said, well, you'll still feel lethargic and you might get a little queasy. And I put my hand up and I said, no. If it's going to come back, it's going to come back. What will it buy me? She says, well, studies have shown that it buys about 20 months. I said, I bought 20 months on my own. And if I get 20 months on my own again, I'll be happy. The verdict is, I'll be tested every six to eight weeks. I will be drug-free and try and get as much of this chemo out of my system. Can I tell you how much better I feel? It was not a good time in my life. Let's just put it that way. Nobody knew I had the hips done. Nobody knew the cancer came back. My Soon to be what I thought husband, who I was living with, left me, went through four rounds of chemo, hips healed, almost had a nervous breakdown, but I lived. (laughs) I'm here. So that has been what's gone on with me since episode five of Lemons to Lemonade. Today, I'm playing racquetball. I took a nasty 
nasty fall and landed, wouldn't you know, on that left hip. Oh, I fell. I rolled on my back. I laid there. I prayed. Oh, did I pray. I moved my legs as quickly as I could, just bending them up and down. The hip stayed in place. I breathed a sigh. <laughs> you know, like that sigh of relief that we all read about. I got back up and I continued to play because I knew if I didn't, I'd never play again. Just like falling off a horse or bike. I'm now playing more. I've joined a gym. I'm getting myself all my muscles tighter so that maybe that'll keep that hip in place and it'll never happen again. I did go back and talk to the surgeon, by the way. I said to him, now, I don't want you to talk at all. Please, you've got to let me say what I've come here to say and ask the questions I need to ask. So I sat down. I said, why didn't you tell me that there is a possibility that something like this could happen, that a hip could come out of place? He says to me, Robin, in all my 35 years of doing this, it's never happened. I said, well, there you have it. I'm always the one out of a hundred that something will happen to. It's just me. I said, so, but how do I know that it won't happen again to the same hip or the other hip? He says, you don't, not unless you want me to go in surgically and check to make sure that they need to be retightened. I said, you mean like a, a thread with screws? He says, well, basically, yeah. I said, no, no. I said, is there anything you can forewarn me about that I should absolutely not do? He says, well, don't turn your knees in. It's just when you turn them in that that joint rotates the wrong way. And I'm picturing myself in the bathtub shaving my legs. Did I do that? You know, could that have been what caused it? Since that time, I've felt it sort of slip in and slip out a few times. But I'm still playing racquetball and I'm shooting pool. I'm doing a lot of bending and standing and playing ping pong and using machines in the gym. I am determined. I'm going to make it through. If it kills me, I'm not going to die from cancer. I'll get hit by a bus or something because I think I can make it. Like I'll run. I'll dart into the street and get hit by the bus. <sighs> That's my story and I'm sticking to it for now. That's a hell of a story if you ask somebody. <laughs> now that I think about it, not too many people have a story like that. But I'm glad I've had you to ride along, listen, and encourage. Feel free to write me anytime. Robin Marshall, sugar mom at gmail.com. You know, for the last couple episodes, I've talked to people while doing the podcast, and I really enjoy it. So if you have an issue or a problem or something you just want to talk about that matters to you, write me, and I'll call you, and we'll record it, and we'll have fun. You could also leave me a review if you've liked anything that I've done in the past. You know, you can go to iTunes and download any one of my episodes for free. But it's nice if I can hear from you on the podcast platform where it says review because it makes me feel like somebody really is listening. <laughs> I'm not just talking to myself in this microphone in this little studio of mine. And I look forward to talking with you again. But I look even more forward to hearing from you. How's that? It's Robin Marshall, Sugar Mom. A Westwood One podcast production. <laughs>